This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. We're kicking over sacred cows left and right. Of course, I'm going to have to be a criminal in order to, to get my PhD done. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we break down a research paper molecule into its tiny atomic units. It's a micro-publication. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 123. 123. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we're very proud that you can count. Go ahead. Easy as ABC. I think I got that back. We'll discuss the human side of science and, and life. life in the lab. Uh, hi, uh, Dan. Hi, Josh. Speaking of one, two, three, we are sort of going back to our roots today. We are recording in a in a studio that is not our normal studio. It is more akin to our the studio we first recorded in, which was at my house in my basement. In your basement. We are back not in your basement. You're I, in a new house. It was, I was, that was two or three houses ago for me. But we're back at my house today because I had an interview set up. You happen to be free, and so you came over here. Yeah, I just want to point out that it is Friday night at 9 p.m. And what are we doing? Podcasting. Podcasting. That's what we do. <laughs> I can't think of a better thing to do on a Friday night, Dan, than be here podcasting with you. Well, and we have been very busy this fall, so we had, um, hopefully everybody enjoyed the the repeat episode on personal statements and applications. I know that this is a hectic time. It's a scary time for people applying to graduate school. We have a lot of listeners who are undergrads, people who are doing um, maybe tech jobs or working in labs, trying to go back for a PhD. And the process of getting from from that tech job or that undergrad into a PhD program, you have to go through the application process. And no one has prepared you for it before, and that's what we tried to do with that episode. Yeah, Dan, that's a great segue into an Apple podcast review that we received this week. Excellent. Let's hear about it. All right. This is titled Ready to Apply. And I I told you. (laughs) I told you people are ready. Right. I believe, Dan, this is actually from Grace, who recently became a Patreon patron. Oh, excellent. Let's hear what she had to say. So, So she said, I have been preparing to apply to grad school for the past two years, and finding this podcast was the last piece of the puzzle I needed to get the ball rolling. I'm submitting applications in December and feel so much more confident with Hello PhD's tips and support. Thank you, Josh and Dan. Awesome. And I please write to us if you are applying this year. I mean, it's exciting for us to think that people are starting their graduate school career on a better foot than you and I did, Josh. That makes that warns our heart. It's the reason we do this. Oh, there's so much information we give on the show. Most of it is information we did not have when we were <laughs> going through the process ourselves. So true. Josh, want to remind everybody, all the artists listening out there, that there is a Promega Art Contest for Creative Scientists coming up, and the deadline is is approaching rapidly. So if you want to submit a digital image of your artwork, do so before December 1st, 2019. That could be a photograph. It could be a microscopy you've done. Uh, but it can also be any kind of art. It could be painting, sculpture, drawing, any kind of media that shows off your creativity. Promega will pick three winners to receive a prize pack and be featured in their art showcase starting in January. And one grand prize winner will have the chance to actually go to Madison, 
hang out at Promega headquarters, meet the scientists, which we did not long ago, and it was a great time. So highly recommend winning. If you're going to enter, you should win. They're they're very nice people. It was really fun. And a beautiful campus, by the way. And if you want to enter, go to promega.com slash hellophd. And the winner will be announced on December 6th, so that December 1st deadline, less than a month away. Get sculpting. That's all I can say. Dan, one thing we have not mentioned yet is this beer that we are drinking tonight. How did I miss it? How did you miss it? It's Friday night, Dan. So uh, don't feel bad for us. We are podcasting, but we do have this delicious beer. And I know you don't like, Dan, that I tend to talk about the weather a lot. I don't like it. You're right. (laughs) But I have a good story for this beer. Okay. This is one that we purchased a couple months ago, and it has been in my fridge all this time looking at me every time I go to pick out a beer for for the show. But it never felt quite right drinking a chocolate hazelnut porter when the temperature was in the 80s or 90s outside. That would be inappropriate, you're right. But it's chilly now. It's fall now. It is, yeah. We've, we've had some cold move through. So we are drinking, and I thought, Dan, we're recording this the day after Halloween. This is the Heretic. It's a very spooky looking can. The Heretic chocolate hazelnut porter, a porter with natural flavors added. And this comes from, I believe this is Heretic Brewing? It's Heretic Brewing, but I didn't actually look up where they are based. We should find that out. They are in Fairfield, California. The beers come a long way. Yeah. It says never filtered, never pasteurized, no shortcuts. Can I tell you what I think of it? What do you think? I think it's a delicious beer, and I taste chocolate, and I taste hazelnut, and I taste porter. You know what it reminds... The flavor, though, has a profile of home-brewed beer to me, and I don't know what that means or why that is, but it's got this multi-character or or the flavor of... It doesn't taste like a commercial beer to me, and I don't know why. Maybe it's that unfiltered, unpasteurized. Could be, because we never filtered or pasteurized when we made beer. <laughs> we wouldn't have even known how to. That's true. Well, well we could have figured it well, out. That's true. We are scientists, you know. Chocolate hazelnut, Dan. What does that remind you of? Nutella? Nutella. Does it taste like Nutella to you? I don't know. I haven't had a lot of Nutella in my life. Do you taste the palm oil? Is there palm oil in it? No. There oh, isn't Nutella. There isn't. Would you drink it again is the question. You know, this is not my typical fare, but I like it. I think it's good. Uh, It has that, I'm a coffee drinker, as you know, Dan, and sometimes these chocolate porters and chocolate stouts, they scratch that same itch that coffee scratches for me. So I like it. Okay. Well, we will keep it around, I suppose. And Josh, we have for our main event tonight, the... An interview about a topic that I think we, in the interview we discussed, would not have existed 10 years ago or 15 years ago, or at least we didn't know about it. It wasn't a big deal. Twitter? Twitter. Yes, exactly. The Twitter of research publications. That's exciting. That's interesting. Am I giving too much away? No, I think this is great. Micro publications. Micro publications. So we're going to find out what that even means, what it could do to scientific publishing if it were to take off, and... I think, importantly, how people listening can get involved in this new trend in publication. And Dan, would you say, if folks listening have not heard it yet, perhaps pair this episode with its partner episode 120, Advancing Open Science with John Tennant? I think that's a great idea. They go together like chocolate and hazelnut. Nate Jacobs, welcome to Hello PhD. Hi, thanks for having me on. It's a great podcast, and I'm uh, glad, to, glad to chat with you guys. Thanks, Daniel and Josh. We are connecting across a few time zones, but why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? 
Sure, sure. So I'm a neuroscientist. Uh, I spent most of my most of my background doing uh, at systems level neuroscience, so doing a lot of neural recording and neural imaging, uh, looking at uh, hippocampal activity and uh, learning and memory, and then uh, moving into uh, sensory systems and looking at how um, different sensory systems processed information. And uh, yeah, so I got my PhD at UCI uh, in Ron Frostig's lab, and then I did a postdoc at UCLA. And um, it was during my postdoc that I started getting really frustrated with the publishing process. Um, and so for me, the way that it kind of happened was I, um, uh, you know, I was publishing in journals, some, you know, more prestigious journals and some quote unquote lower journals. Um, but every time I published it really, it kind of felt like a failure. How is that possible? Publishing <laughs> is success. That is the definition of success as far as I understand it. Publish or perish. Publish or perish. Yeah. So it was supposed to be this good feeling, right? And and there was some of that, right? It's like, yeah, you get this line on my CV. But just in terms of my own like kind of core academic values, it was feeling like a failure. Um, I was feeling, you know, I wasn't sure if other people were going to be able to re- reproduce it. I was feeling like it wasn't reflecting the level of collaborativity um, that I, you know, that you sometimes experience in lab. Um, and it was feeling like a little bit like I was in sort of my own room telling a story. Um, and I think the best example of this is the um, the discussion section, which is just, really bothersome to me, you know, have this section called the discussion section, and then you proceed to have a conversation with yourself and like create these straw man arguments. And so it started feeling very fake to me. And like, I should be just having these conversations directly through the literature instead of um, pretending to have these conversations in the discussion section. So um, anyways, I mean, that was sort of one part of it. Um, and that just kind of gave me pause. Now, let me let me pause you right there. Because yeah, are the reviewers not the other side of that conversation when you're submitting a paper? I mean, I get what you're saying, that, that you feel like you, in a discussion, you are trying to be both sides and, and answer mm-hmm. concerns that you don't actually have because you were the one doing the research. But the reviewers, I assume, are coming in and being that other voice. There's a little bit with the peer review. Like, if you publish in Frontiers, they're a little bit better about this, where you can, like, have this back and forth, and it's a little bit more iterative. But, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I had really frustrating processes, uh, experiences where... Um, it was clear that they didn't read the paper. And so they had these very long articulated review. And it was like, if they had just read the method section, they would realize that it was not correct what they were saying. And so um, I don't know, do you, have you guys had those experiences as well? That is so frustrating. Because you you <laughs> poured months, years, potentially into this product, and couldn't take the time to go through it, to even look at it, let alone to understand what happened in it. Yeah, I mean, that was always one of my least favorite types of critique was, well, the authors really should have said this, or they really should have accounted for that. But it's like, it's right there in that paragraph. That, Allow me to highlight it yeah. for you. <laughs> you know, I always, yeah. you know, the, the positive spin, I always tried to put on that, if you can call it a positive spin as well, okay, maybe I should have just made it more clear. But certainly mm-hmm. it's frustrating when a response to a critique like that is, well, we actually did do that. Yeah, it's and right it's there. also not just the reviewer's fault necessarily, because it's, you have to read these really, really long manuscripts. And, uh, you know, a lot of times you only have like, you know, three to five hours. I think I was reading somewhere where the average time people spend peer reviewing a manuscript is, you know, it's like three to five hours, which is a lot of time, but it's also not that much time considering it's potentially years of work. Um, And so there's a little bit of, um, you know, fatigue and burnout in terms of being able to actually have the time to dig through everything. Um, So there's also that. (laughs) Yeah, I've actually agreed to review two manuscripts 
right now that are in my to-do list. And part of me is thinking, why did I agree to do these right now? Because <laughs> you're absolutely right. I mean, from the reviewer side, you want to do a good job and you it is an important yeah. role, but it, it you're right. It takes a lot of time and most of mm-hmm. these folks are doing it for free, fitting in with their day job. Yeah. So that was part of kind of what sort of made me pause and sort of think about shifting gears a little bit. Um, and then, so I was in my postdoc, you know, kind of like thinking through all these things like, oh, this, this peer review is kind of weird. And my publishing these papers is feeling like a little bit of a failure. And then I, I basically just kind of paused and I started talking to people. And so I did this thing where I just started connecting with people through through Twitter and social media and just started asking people about their experiences with reading and publishing articles. So this is really kind of what really opened my eyes and really kind of lit a fire in me to sort of really like leave my postdoc and, and, and head out and pursue this was just really, really basic issues of access. You know, they're just talking with people. So there was one person in, um, I think it was somewhere on the East Coast, but they were at a small liberal arts college and they were clearly like a shy um, sort of like rule follower person. Um, and she had she had come from a, a bigger university, so she had never had to deal with access issues. And so she was telling me quite emotionally about how she was part of her work is, is having to navigate mentoring her students and telling them how to finish their, their research projects when they can't actually read the literature. So like telling them about emailing authors and then if they can't get the article that way, you know, potentially kind of nudging them and hinting them to use things like Sci-Hub and other illegal methods. And it was clearly a very emotional thing for her. But then I also have talked with people who just you know, we're in grad school and in, you know, universities that don't have good access. And so Sci-Hub and, and you know, illegal file sharing was just kind of a, a, an unwritten, like, oh, yeah, of course, I'm going to be using that. So just this kind of phrase of, um, you know, of course, I'm going to have to be a crim- criminal in order to, to get my PhD done, which is just kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah. And it's amazing so, uh, the, the way you're describing that. It, it almost feels like you're describing how everybody had to behave 40 years ago, right? Yeah. <laughs> the journal was paper. <laughs> And you would write to another lab to get a copy of their Mm -hmm. result. Maybe it was indexed somewhere as you found out it existed. But we live in an age where we're talking over the internet. So that feels like a really backwards way of doing research. And I I feel for the professor or the the PI who's who's saying to their student, I can't be the one telling you to go on Sci-Hub, but our university can't afford to get you the research you need to do your work. Yeah, no, it's really crazy. And... It is a complicated issue, and it's um, the business models in this space are are difficult. But just just on a gut level, a surface level, it just it really felt like we could do better. Um, and there's lots of industries that you know have to do a lot of challenging things. But this this idea of you know paying seven thousand dollars to post a PDF on a website, it just it just feels like we can do better than that. And I, I think we can. <laughs> yeah, and, and this hopefully will sound familiar to the people listening because it was just a few weeks ago back in episode 120 that we interviewed John Tennant, who I know you know, uh, Nate. Mm-hmm. And, and we talked a lot about broadly the concept of open science and all of the different facets of what open science means. But you're working on, uh, he actually mentioned your name and, and this is I think how we got connected. You're working on a, a specific subset of that problem. Can you tell us what that is? Yeah, so if you think of um, um, the current literature is kind of big, slow, and exclusive, uh, micropublication is kind of the opposite of, out of that. So basically, micropublication is shrinking the uh, the form factor of the the um, content that you're publishing. So actually, the concept has been talked about for a while, um, since like the 70s or the 80s. And um, if you really dive into the literature, there's all these kind of nuances like nanopublications, micropublications. So it's sort of in the process of being defined. The way that I'm defining it the way that we're defining it is about the length of a single figure. So a single figure, a single finding, and really what what differentiates it is that you're not you're not waiting until you have a full, complete, clear um, narrative 
you're really publishing individual findings. And so um, what that allows you to do is to publish it much more quickly. But then it also brings with it this, this really interesting challenge of how do you then um, pick up the pieces and allow people to tell stories with these smaller pieces. So let's do that contrast now. So if I were publishing a paper back when I was in my PhD, I would have one of my figures would be a, a gel of a protein that I purified. Uh, and that would be maybe the first thing to prove that I was able to, you know, actually find this protein in the cell. And then I might do some binding assays, or I might do some um, RNAi, or I might do some cell expression. And I would build all of those figures up into a story about how this protein affected a cell. And what you're saying is, when I got that first gel, I should do something with it. Is that right? Basically, yeah. And so, I mean, part of what we're digging into is how this would play out in different communities. And I think it's going to be different in different communities. But yeah, essentially, you would be publishing uh, the methods first. Then you'd be publishing um, sort of those initial findings. And um, what that gives you is that as you're publishing things, you get this rush of community support in as you're going through it. So it might be a slightly different story arc than if you were doing it all by yourself. But each step along the way is going to be more robust and allow potential replications and, um, and ideas to kind of flood in and help you when you get to the end of that story, you're much, much more confident in that narrative arc than if you had just done it all by yourself kind of siloed. The, a good analogy is sort of open source software with GitHub. So you kind of let people into that narrative process. And then maybe the software is a little bit different than when you started, but you're much more confident and it's a much more robust narrative because you've had the replications, you've had the people um, kind of coming in. And this this does happen right now, obviously. I mean, you give talks and you go to conferences and give posters. So part of what we're trying to do is actually just formalize that into the literature because a lot of that isn't actually getting into the literature and getting formalized in that way. If that makes sense. That does make sense. What are some of the other advantages to micro-publishing besides, you know, I think the comparison to open source is really good. So it could be a way to get your findings out into the field quicker to get more feedback and maybe help you advance um, your science to open those findings up to discussion and critique earlier. Uh, are there other advantages that solve some of these problems of traditional publishing? Yeah, so so the speed is definitely one of them. I think that makes it, uh, you know, kind of a more dynamic conversation. Um, I think you kind of touched on this a little bit, but this idea of increasing reproducibility. So, you know, depending on who you talk to, a large, large chunk of the literature is not reproducible. So as much as 50% or, or more, depending on the field in the lab. So, so that's another one is just, you know, having really solid building blocks. So I like this um, analogy of instead of building like a whole house out of straw, you're built, you're kind of releasing individual bricks that are like really, really solid. And then you kind of build the house together. But I think overall, for me, what really gets me excited about micropublication and, and just rapid communication in general is this idea that instead of having this full story and publishing, um, you know, this, this really big, long story that you get a lot of credit for, and you get this line on your CV, you're actively leading your community down a line of inquiry, a really exciting line of inquiry that's happening in real time. When you think about the literature, like if you think of a, if you go to, you know, nature or science right now, and you look at something that was just put on the site today, you're actually looking at something that happened two years ago. And if you contacted that author, they're probably in a different lab. They're not working on that project anymore. And they'll have to, 
you know, this has happened to me too, or somebody will send you an email and it's like, oh, like, oh yeah, this just got published. And so, and you have to kind of like go back and think about what was happening in the lab and, and kind of dig through your lab notebook. Those, those cell lines have already died. All those antibodies were lost somewhere <laughs> yeah. in the back of the freezer. I work at a museum now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't, don't bother me. Like I'm getting a headache just thinking about that. <laughs> but it, actually, you yeah. know what? The very thing did happen to me where, you know, I transitioned out of the lab into more of an administrative career and I received an email about three years into my, my position asking some very detailed technical questions about my graduate work. And I had to respond back and say, look, I haven't picked up a pipette man in five years. I'd love to help you, but no. Yeah. But I'm sure that was largely unsatisfying for them. And and for me, yeah. well, and I really I, I loved your analogy about this is not going to appeal to everybody, but I loved your analogy about GitHub. In in writing software, you frequently check in the code you wrote, and you have somebody else look at it, and then they say, "Oh, actually, I would have done it this way," or "What if you restructured it like this?" And it keeps you from going so far down a path where you get thousands mm-hmm. of lines of ri- code written, and then somebody says, "Oh, actually, I wish we had done it a different way," and so. Every day at my work, this is exactly how we we interact by mm-hmm. doing small digestible checks of of how mm-hmm. we're progressing. And in fact, even if we have a big project, we say stop. Here are the the Chunk stages. We got to break it up so that a person can mm-hmm. understand all the changes being made. And it makes you feel a little bit better about it, right? Like it's very it would be very nerve wracking if you were coding for four weeks and then. All at once, you kind of figured out if it was right or not. You know what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely. And and what we call yeah. those is is failed companies. Now this is this is the way that software is written. Uh, we used yeah. to do a, a big five year plan, and what happens is you get to the end of your five year plan, and nobody wanted the thing you were writing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think a question that's coming up in my mind, and I'd love Nate to get your feedback on this. I'm sure this is something you've heard before, or even Dan, as you're talking about GitHub and how software is written. But I've been entrenched in academic research and science for a long time, and especially the plight and the milestones that graduate students and postdocs typically have to to pass. So how does this interface with some of these traditional... Incentive structures? Yeah, incentive structures for graduate students, say, needing to get a certain number of publications, Mm -hmm. or, you know, I'm even imagining... If I'm a, a trainee who's needing to eventually complete the story or get these publications to graduate, is there even yeah. fear if I put out the baseline building blocks of this really cool project that I have into a really hot or crowded field? Am I then opening myself up to being Scooping. scooped, right? Yeah. Are, are these things that you hear about? And what would you say to, to those critiques? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so I think there's a big issue. And I think, you know, our long-term vision is to directly compete with, uh, you know, kind of these traditional journal articles. And so it is, um, you know, you have some people that are like, for example, preprints are very much positioned as like a preprint. And then so it doesn't directly compete. Um, but our long-term vision is to really directly compete. So that, um, you know, that is, is, is a really important issue for us. So we kind of are approaching it from two ways. First is there's a lot of research results that just would never get published at all. So our kind of first step as we're, we're a very small company, we're just getting going, we're, we haven't even really launched our MVP yet. Um, and so we're kind of sidestepping the issue at the beginning by focusing just on um, things that would never get published anyway. So maybe you you never publish this method, or maybe you have a, um, a really interesting result 
um, but you just don't have two years to sink into turning into a full story. So all of those things um, we're, we're planning to capture sort of right out of the gate. It does not directly compete with, you know, okay, I don't want to get this this little nugget out here that I'm going to like slowly turn into to a nature paper, which I think is important just as a very pragmatic kind of um, getting people introduced to the concept. And then I think, you know, going forward, really, if I imagine five years down the line or if we're really, you know, operating at scale, I, I really kind of turn back to this notion of being in the moment and actually being able to contribute and actively leading as things are happening. So I think um, this is a little bit potentially controversial, but I want people to have to make that calculation of if I wait two years to publish this, is it still going to be relevant or not? If there's so many people that are rapidly publishing, is it is it still going to be relevant or do I have to publish now because otherwise the conversation is going to miss me? So like the, you know, the example is before and after Twitter, you know, if you're not talking about something on Twitter, like if you're, if Trump does something like a month ago and then you're, you're waiting to talk about it after a month, I mean, it's, that conversation has already happened. You're kind of out of the loop already. And to kind of step back a little bit, uh, if you guys don't mind, I, I have this analogy that really that really helps me frame the perspective. Um, so if you think like a couple hundred years ago, like maybe like three to five hundred years ago, most like new scientific discoveries and, and lines of inquiry were published as books. You didn't have these things called articles. And so I really love thinking about just really big picture, thinking about the transition from books, like if you think of like when calculus was published or origin of the species, and then these journals come around with these scientific articles, um, which are these much more rapid forms of communication, um, much, much smaller, much faster. Um, if you imagine that kind of process, we're seeing the same sort of science happening now from going from articles to micropublications or preprints or other rapid forms of communication. And it's, it's just really, I like thinking about it in that way, because a lot of the same things had to happen. So we so there's sort of precedents for this already where, you know, if you imagine back in the day, right as these articles were coming out, if you waited to publish a whole book about what you were doing, you were probably going to get left behind. Um, and so, so you kind of were forced as things became faster and more atomized, you were sort of forced to, to adopt these more rapid forms of communication. And so it's a little bit high level, but that's kind of where we're heading. It almost feels inevitable. And and I, I like the mm -hmm. idea that you're you're trying to change the economic decision of waiting a while to craft my my magnum opus versus getting <laughs> getting my information out there as fast as I can. And, and I think that comes with trade-offs that we will continue to talk about. Speaking of your analogy, yeah. it almost seems surprising that we haven't made that next jump, like you mentioned, from books to articles and now articles to something else. You know, given yeah. this information age we're in with the internet where I can make something available to anyone on the entire planet with an internet connection. I mean, that's been available for a while. So it almost, yeah. it almost is surprising. Yeah. That there haven't been any major steps forward with the way we, the way we share scientific discovery um, since yeah, the dawn I, of articles. Yeah. So what is your yeah. solution to that, Nate? <laughs> so, I mean, I think in general, I, I, that's something that's, that's, that's definitely like stuck in my mind as well. And looking at a lot of, there's also a lot of past failures where people have, have tried to do things like this and have failed. Um, I think the first answer to that is more is happening than you think. So I think there are signs of this happening. So you do have this preprint revolution that's happening, which is a lot of people thought that it would only work in physics and, and math, but now it's happening with bioarchive. Um, but if you also look, you see a lot of people posting things on Twitter, like actual results and figures on Twitter. So I think I think this is happening. It's obviously not happening when you're living through history. It seems like a glacial pace. But when we look back, you know, in 20 years, it's going to have happened very, very quickly um, over the course of a few years. Um, so this this is happening. And I think 
what we're really trying to do is is formalize it and make it sort of okay and actually um, you know create standards for 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 putting these micro publications into the literature as opposed to to tweeting about it or, or writing a blog about it. I'm trying to get you to say the name of who we are. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm really because I, I don't think yeah. we've said it so far. So, so Nate, I see in my notes you have a company. <laughs> yes, I have a company. Yeah. <laughs> Who are you? I am setting this up and just waiting for you to knock it down. Who is this I'm, guy? I'm, no, I'm terrible. Yeah, no, <laughs> I founded the company Flash Pub. <laughs> you can learn more about us at flashpub.io, um, and we are a micro publishing platform. So all these little bits of uh, content that we're talking about, these micro-publications. Um, we are building a platform to, to publish them and to connect them together in interesting ways. What we're doing is, so two things. One is we're taking a community-specific approach. So we're, we are launching in specific communities to try to tackle these kind of complicated you know, cultural and workflow barriers, specific communities, and kind of go one by one and try to solve them um, um, each on their own. Um, and so each of them is going to have their own subdomain. So uh, we're starting with uh, actually clinical case studies. So just to talk about that a little bit, the reason why we're starting with those is they already have a form factor that is basically the size of a micropublication. So if you imagine uh, publishing a clinical case, you have, um, you know, a diagnosis or, or, or a treatment option and you have basically one kind of set of findings that support that singular conclusion. Um, and so it's not as exciting as, you know, um, you know, like a full on, you know, medical journal, but it's sort of low hanging fruit for us to, to prove the principle. And then from there, we're going to sort of pivot back to uh, artificial intelligence community. For, for us, what's really interesting about that is, you know, having a corpus of case studies that can be published very, very rapidly. So for example, um, if you imagine the Ebola outbreak or other infectious disease outbreaks, you can have very rapid publishing of these clinical cases. Um, and then that can be, uh, you can have this sort of dynamic interaction with people in the AI community that are building predictive models for how the, uh, the, the course of the outbreak might happen or um, which treatments are working or not. And then they can be rapidly publishing those back and have that affect potentially what information is being provided in the clinical cases. I mean, that's great because you can, you can not only start capturing data, but immediately have an impact on human health, which is amazing. Yeah. So that's kind of what we're thinking. Like it's sort of fits low hanging fruit. Um, but then it also kind of has this very like, yeah, very visible, tangible output um, to try to kind of prove the principle. Um, one sort of aspect of that that's important is that also kind of gets at the incentive structure. So we're we're trying to find areas where rapid communication is just intrinsically valuable. So like in an outbreak or, you know, things like that where, um, and you actually see this when, um, when there's outbreaks you see on Twitter, people are um, really calling for, for virologists and researchers to forget about the typical incentive structure and just publish as much as they can to help figure out what's happening in, in the health crisis. Um, and so we feel like we can step into that space and really immediately make an impact um, where there's already kind of this, this uh, warping of the incentive structures um, and then proving, um, you know, long-term that this new way of publishing more rapidly, these smaller bite-sized units can actually be used to advance your career. It's not just being nice and, 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 you know, sharing more for the, for the good of humanity, but it's actually, you can use this as a tool to advance your career by, you know, using the aforementioned uh, things that we've been talking about to be kind of a leader, an active leader in, in pushing the field forward. And you've got a really, I, I want to uh, kind of paint a visual picture for people because this is an audio format, but on your website, just for somebody who's thinking about what a micro publication is in a very concrete way, you've got an image on, on your website that is, it looks like a something that you would submit. It's got mm -hmm. little lines coming off. It says machine-friendly title, so something yep. that a computer can read. Yep. A single figure, so it's got a little bar yep. graph uh, icon. Brief description, and then links to data, code, and protocols. So that is the nugget of information that you're trying to capture. 
title that a machine can read, figure, description, and then links to all of the supporting information. Does that sound accurate? That's perfect. Yeah, I probably should have started with that. That was a great way of saying it. <laughs> well, it's your graphic. I'm just looking at it and saying it in words. Yeah. One of the most important things that we're doing that kind of differentiates us from, from previous efforts is that we are really focused on wrapping each micro-publication around a single, explicit, well-structured assertion. So for the case studies, it's if it's just a diagnosis, you're publishing a diagnosis of a particular disease. Or if it's a treatment, you are connecting a, a disease with a particular treatment, and there's a relationship between them. Was it you know successful or not successful in treating the disease? Um, and so part of what we're doing is we're helping the researcher express themselves in really clear and explicit ways so that the content can then be linked together automatically. So then if somebody else is publishing something similar, we can automatically connect the replications together or find areas of disagreement. Um, and so that's a really important part of this because one of the things that you lose with micropublications is this broader narrative. You can't just sit down and read the full story. And so it's really important to be able to very easily connect things together. So an analogy would be, you know, on Twitter, it would be ridiculous to just have all of the tweets just all blobbed into one big feed, right? Like you need the social connections, you need the retweets, you need the threading to help make sense of this deluge of information to sort of make sense of it and to allow these narratives to emerge out of the content. So I, I can follow hashtag Ebola if I'm interested in, in that on Twitter, mm -hmm. and the same might be true on Flashpub. Yeah, yeah. So you could click on Ebola and it would it would show you all of the um yeah, all of the the pubs or, or cases for that. Or, you know, potentially a particular treatment option if it's Ebola, you know, treated with, you know, whatever whatever it is, like a certain vaccine, and then you could look through all the pubs for that um and filter it in different ways. Is there peer review in this process or is it anybody can submit anything? It is peer reviewed. The process is very, very similar to Faculty of a Thousand Research. If you've um if you've used that before, if you haven't, just quickly uh, you can publish instantly. So as soon as you publish, it's visible on the platform. When you um, when you do that, though, it goes into this review state. Um, and so we're organizing around this seven-day review period where um, we're basically going to be promoting the content to make sure it gets peer-reviewed in seven days. Um, but it's crowdsourced. So anybody can come in and flag things that are wrong with it and endorse it. And so uh, it's a public uh, endorsement. So if you endorse it, basically your name gets associated with that endorsement. And you need three or more endorsements in, for, uh, in order for the content to, to pass through the peer review process. So it's a slightly lower bar than the typical traditional peer review. Um, but then part of this also is having um, rigorous community standards so that the community, even after that review period, can um, can come to content, can flag content, and can trigger um, additional review or potentially editorial retra retraction. So one of the things that we're trying to do is make sure that things that are are not good content get actually retracted. So this is this is something that doesn't happen enough, we feel like, in, uh, in the traditional literature. That's important yeah. because I think... One of the criticisms of the idea, even the notion of a micropublication is, well, you're just going to put whatever you want out and pollute the literature. And that's not what you're talking about. You're talking about a way to put it out incrementally, but still have it go through a process where other eyes are looking at it. Other scientists are saying, this makes sense to me, or I have concerns. And, and when mm -hmm. they have concerns, presumably that goes back to the researcher or how does that process work? So we're really trying to organize around getting getting it reviewed in those seven days. So um, so there will be a period where they can actually et, you know edit things during those those seven those seven days. And we'll, we'll have to play with that a little bit depending on, you know, seven days might be a little bit intense, but we're 
at least now hopeful that we can we can meet that. Um, but yeah, but then they could potentially edit it there. The other thing is that they're smaller nuggets, so there's less potential need for changes. So I mean, if you think of a huge manuscript, um, there's a lot of potential changes that could happen there through peer review. So it's a little bit more of a, uh, a narrow target. But um, yeah, so then there's that editing during that that seven day period, and then potential you know retraction if it doesn't uh, if there's some serious issues with it down the road. I mean, the the most common thing I can think of is somebody would want to see a control, or they would want to understand. You know, mm-hmm. the the data that went into this figure, the number of samples wasn't enough for me, or whatever it happens to mm-hmm. be. Or the code was wrong, or wasn't provided, right. or... But it's not, yeah. your entire dissertation is crap. Now go back and start at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. There's a lower threshold, so you can just like kind of go back and redo it if you want, and then republish it later. Um, it's not a huge, huge deal. The other thing that I've, I've been thinking about, which would be a much, much higher bar in terms of peer review, is... You know, at some point, so obviously we'll keep that that crowdsource peer review. Um, but with this platform where you have more rapid publishing and more dynamics and more replications, there's ways to rank content that uh, rank content higher that's been reproduced. So, like, we kind of could, depending on how things go, we could move towards a much much higher bar of peer review, which would be can people actually reproduce this or not? And so there's ways that you could potentially like, you know, do like a verified flag or things like that, where, you know, if you've gotten three other people to actually reproduce this in their lab, that's like the absolute gold standard for peer review, right? That's like whatever. I mean, I don't know what the word for that is, but just it's actually reproduced, which, which does not happen very often right now. Um, so that's a very long-term goal. I, I don't know if we can get there. That's a pretty high bar. But again, with these smaller, the smaller form factor, it's a lower threshold. It's within reach, I feel like. Yeah, absolutely. And and the ability to reproduce a single experiment is different from the ability to reproduce a full study. And there may mm-hmm. be certain key experiments in your research that you know your conclusion hinges on the results of that thing. And you may be able to get other labs to, to go back and do the same thing. And like you said, if a different set of hands in a different lab can get the same results with with their own reagents and their own equipment, that's pretty great. You know, I think that's kind of the point of what we're trying to do as well. Like we, you know, when we go back to this idea of storytelling, we want to empower researchers to tell stories that are true, right? And so when you're doing it by yourself in, you know, your lab and, you know, you're you're having to get to this, this really high bar of getting all the way to the full story, you just have a lot of anxieties about whether or not that's actually true or not. And so it turns out that a lot of times it ends up not being true and it's not the fault of the researcher. I mean, they're having to do this all by themselves and go through this, this epic journey with, with very little input from the community and very little, um, you know, reproductions to help them figure out where the ground truth is. You know, one of the things that, that weighs on me is that we're trying to tell more and more complex stories and accomplish bigger and bigger things with science. And so we're, we're moving towards a, a period where we really need to be collaborating and we really need to be reproducing each other's work because it's just much, much harder to do. I mean, you you look at uh, ischemic stroke and there's billions and billions of dollars spent on, on trying to develop cures for this. And we've come up with very, very little. A lot of the results haven't been able to be reproduced. And so we're seeing these failures on a very big level. And so we kind of, I think, are naturally moving towards this point where we are kind of taking a step back and saying, hey, this isn't working, and we need to be focusing much more on reproducibility. Um, and part of that is is getting things out there quickly, um, making sure other people can can replicate it, um, and telling this story together, um, as opposed to trying to you know, have individual labs be the hero and, and you know come up with a cure for cancer because we're finding that that doesn't really that doesn't really work. You need to collaborate. <laughs> well, and it's so important. It, 
the way that a publication gets put together is exactly as you say, there's a narrative arc that I'm leading toward. And so if I have evidence that is contradictory, I'm not going to include that evidence yeah. in my publication. Whereas if yeah. I am micro-publishing, all of those things enter the record, and then mm -hmm. we can draw conclusions as a community about what that means. Yeah, and you just feel better about it, and you, I think you feel more solid about it. And I think it, I, the, the goal is to resume, uh, reduce some of that anxiety and to really tell much more compelling stories. It's going to happen slower, right? It's a slower story, but a more robust story. I like the, the, the full story, you know, it'll take longer to get there, but we'll get there together and it'll be more robust. It might be a faster story because you've got other people paying attention to your small steps. As opposed yeah, to sitting or, at your desk, just with your head in your hands, waiting for your PI to review the paper that you put on his desk six weeks ago. Sorry, <laughs> not bitter. That's all, that's also true. Yeah. <laughs> so it seems um, like for you know for this collaboration and communication to happen, getting the information in front of the researchers in your field is kind of an important piece of that. So do you see our publication, micro publications from FlashPub? being indexed by some of these databases that are used by researchers, you know, PubMed being like one that comes to mind as we talk about yeah. biomedical type examples. Cause I could imagine that could be an important piece if we want these bits of information to be, you've got to go where the people are. Yeah. Yep. Especially definitely, early definitely. on. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So PubMed is really tricky. They have pretty stringent like inclusion criteria. Um, they were, moving in a direction to be more inclusive and then i think i think the last i heard they were going to kind of be more a little bit like kind of tighten down and be a little bit more conservative um so yeah they're and they also don't include anything outside of um you know kind of the life sciences so if we're you know doing ai stuff they're not going to really include that um but yeah absolutely um so google scholar for sure um getting indexed by there's actually a lot more aggregators than you than you think there's a lot of like community specific aggregators so we're definitely going to be getting into those um I think on a very basic level, just being in indexed in Crossref and just having that metadata available in Crossref is a big one. Um, if you're not familiar with Crossref, they're the ones that issue DOIs for a lot of um, for a lot of publishers, um, and but they also have like really really great APIs. So you can go and, and hit their API and like consume a lot of metadata about the literature. But then also just having a really solid public API ourselves, so that people can collect the content and do whatever they want with it. Um, that's definitely a big part of. Um, this kind of gets back to the just the general open science community in terms of you know having interconnectedness, having interoperability, having really good public APIs so that things are not stuck in walled gardens and aren't stuck with a particular publisher like Elsevier. Like you know, Elsevier is trying really hard to to kind of keep everything stuck within Elsevier. Um, and so there's a lot of people working really really hard to make sure that this movement leads towards something that looks much more like the web and less like uh, a walled garden. And so we, we definitely very much want to be a part of that. So if somebody is listening and, and you described some of the early um, realms in which you're going to try to do some micro publication, maybe experiments that are not part of a larger narrative that you just want to put out in the world, materials and methods, or if you're in the clinical space where you're, where you're seeing patients or have uh, clinical results, how do those people get involved either in submitting a micropublication or in maybe viewing what's out there? So if you're in the clinical space or are interested in uh, consuming uh, clinical data, we can definitely have a conversation right now. So you can go to the website. We're going to be launching uh, in the next few weeks or months, we'll we're basically doing alpha testing right now. So you can um, you can definitely get involved right now with the the clinical case reports. We're um, focusing on infectious disease and oncology. So if you're in those two categories, then definitely get in touch with us. Clinic.flashpub.io is where the MVP is going to be getting launched. You can also just refresh that, um, which will be happening in, in the next few weeks or months. I've got to um, expand that acronym for our science listeners: minimum viable product. 
Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I am totally on board with you. It is. It is. I was asking Dan. I was mouthing. What is that? It is the startup. <laughs> it is the startup term yeah, for I, the thing that you can put out that is small and testable so that you yes. don't build the five-year plan and find out nobody cares. Well, you know, related to that, Nate might like this and may have heard this acronym. I remember we used to, to joke in graduate school about the LPUs or the least publishable well, unit. There yes. you go. It's the, it's yeah, the MVP. Yeah, I've heard of that too, yeah. <laughs> so Nate, where um, were you when I was in graduate school? I had lots of LPUs that I needed to put out there. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I have a lot of like appendices on my thesis too that should probably get micro-published. <laughs> so if you're not in those fields, um, either clinical or in you know the artificial intelligence field, um, we are launching kind of a, a community Slack channel. So one of the things that we'd like to do is start engaging with people before we launch in their community. So if you would really like this to happen in your community, you can hop on our Slack team, which you can get the link to on our website. I think it's a button that says get started. And then there's one of the options there is to um, is to, to join the Slack team. So you can join there, hop on and talk to us and um, let us know, um, you know what, what community you're in. And we can start thinking about launching in your community as well if, if we can get organized around that. And, and we will put up links to all these things as well as uh, some scientific papers about the notion of micropublishing and about what it can mean. And, uh, you know, so uh, you sent over some papers describing the origins of this concept and how it might apply. So FlashPub is an example, but, but this is a, something in the zeitgeist. It's something that people have been thinking about quite a bit. And I think for somebody interested, they might want to explore all the edges of this this realm of scientific publishing. And there's also, I'll also send you links to, um, or maybe I already did, uh, there's a couple other people experimenting in this micro-publication space. So there's Science Matters and um, also micropublication.org. Um, they're kind of each in specific communities. Um, but um, yeah, there's like a whole bunch of us that are really experimenting and trying to, to push this forward. Um, you know, the status quo is kind of what we're all sort of competing against. So yeah, the more the merrier. <laughs> and, and where can people find you online? So the company is flashpub.io. Um, for me personally, um, I'm most active on Twitter. So at Nate S. Jacobs. And then the company is at flashpub underscore IO. On, um, on Twitter. That's sort of my, my go-to Josh is following you as choice. we speak. Go to the website, you know, follow me on Twitter. I'm always, I'm always talking about this stuff. Um, we can connect on email. Uh, yeah, just shoot me an email, shoot me a DM. You know, I think the, the, the take-home point is that there's a lot of people that are experimenting with a lot of really interesting things to just make publishing much more fun, much more in tune with the way that you're communicating with people in, in other walks of life and in other, other domains. And um, yeah, and just trying to trying to make publishing more equitable and more um, more fast. <laughs> it, it needs to be done. And we appreciate you taking the time to build the, the platforms and the tools to do it and, and for talking about it, for sharing the ideas with us. So thank you so much for, for being on the show. Awesome. Thanks so much. This is great. Dan, I tell you what I love. I love challenging the status quo of academia. You have demonstrated that before. If you're not bringing down uh, 100-year-old organizations, you're just not having fun, Josh. We're kicking over sacred cows left and right, what, tipping them. Do you see this moving forward in a way that, that could really challenge the status quo? Do you think this could, could take off and move the needle on how we publish papers? I think so. I think it can. I'm reflecting on some of the knee-jerk reactions that I had as Nate was describing micro-publications. And I, even one of the questions I asked him was, well, are you going to get it indexed in PubMed? I mean, how else are people going to see it? But then, you know, as I reflected on on that a little bit, I thought, well, why would it need to be? You know, there are all these other tools that are out there that aren't that aren't tied to, in, in the case of PubMed, 
a government entity or an, a corporation or an industry, why do we need that, right? Why would we, why not use some more publicly aggregated or open sourced indexer? I don't know. It was just an interesting thought I had of, well, it has to be in PubMed. Well, why does it? Maybe it doesn't. Yeah. The, the, one of the things I think that, that Nate and the micropublishing notion has going for it is that psychologically, this is going to be a more pleasant experience. You're going to get, you're more often going to get something out there without feeling sick to your stomach. You're going to get feedback quickly, which makes you feel like what you're doing actually has an impact in the world, which is, I think, the reason a lot of us go into science. And you just, you keep turning that crank, getting that that little burst of dopamine or whatever Nate could have told us for publishing something and getting feedback, as opposed to waiting two and a half years fighting with reviewers as they give you feedback two months later, waiting for your PI to get around to reviewing the paper. I mean, I think it's such a negative experience in many ways publishing that I was just talking to a friend of mine who is is a, still a scientist, and she submitted a paper, I think, in January. It is almost out. And what month is it? November now. Almost a year later. And, and you know, she's sick to her stomach about the process and it's not fun and she's burnt out on it. There has to be a better way. So I think I think this idea of micro publication could actually have some stickiness because it's more fun and uh, gives you some rewards along the way. Definitely. You know, Dan, I can remember the first paper that I published in graduate school. We were really excited. It was a really fascinating finding for the field. It was a newer field, a newer bacterium that not many people were studying. And we were excited and we thought, well, maybe we'll swing for the fences and we'll submit it to science. So, you know, science has a very different formatting style than a lot of other journals. So we format it for science. We put it in. Uh, we were fortunate enough we made it past the initial triage step and we actually got a review. So it went out for review, but it came back and we got rejected. Which probably happens to almost everything that gets to that stage. Absolutely. Absolutely. The odds are very small. So that was okay. But then, you know, kind of the next tier journal we went for we had to completely rewrite it, reformat it. And that took a lot of time. But again, this was already maybe three months after that initial uh, submission. Well, this was still a really top, top journal in our field. It ended up getting rejected there. So then I had to retool it again. And about be the, so sick of whatever the oh topic was. And by the time the paper came out, it's exactly what Nate said. I think it was like, it was at least a year to a year and a half after that initial submission. My project, I had completely moved on, was doing other things. You know, I was moving towards my next paper at that point. But this fresh new paper that came out was really a year and a half old. I'd presented it at two or three conferences at that point. It's tough to think about how you would respond to a reviewer at that stage who says, oh, could you do this control and gel number four? No. I can't because I'd have to start over or I'd have to find those samples in the back of the freezer. Well, and you know, it's like what they wanted was it wasn't a big enough story. Like we think this finding is cool, but we really want you to... Oh, that was the actual stated reason for the Yeah, we want you to do step three, four, five Just to build it up before you publish it in Two more journal. years of research and then you can publish it here. Yeah, absolutely. And right? we'll take all of the figures you gave us and put them all into the supplemental materials <laughs> and nobody ever sees them. And nobody wants to read those. So, you know, I really identify with this. And in, and in the meantime, it would have been so great for the field, uh, being a very young field at that time, for that information to have been out there. So we had a lot of people contacting us wanting to know about these findings and see the data but at that, in those days, there was no way to easily share that broadly. Yeah, I think the challenge for any micro-publication platform or any of these open science concepts that we're talking about that are trying to displace 
the behemoth, the status quo, the Elseviers, the way we've always done it, is that I don't think anybody can predict which technology, which platform, which approach is going to win. I think we're going to have to try a bunch of things and we're going to wake up one day and Facebook will exist or Twitter will exist. But if you had asked anybody before those things came out, oh, would you like to get onto a website and share 144 characters with people? You say, no, I wouldn't want to do that. That sounds stupid. Well, and you know, I can remember when even when Twitter first came on the scene, I remember getting on Twitter because, you know. You are an early adopter. I I like social media in general. Are you on TikTok? I'm not on TikTok. Okay. Not yet. But I can remember back in those days, Twitter was just another way to share photos of our food and talk about what we were doing today. There's no way we could have predicted even then the way that it would be used now as this fast-paced information source. And in the science world, I would have never thought, I was a grad student back then, I would have never thought to share my experiments or my results or to network with other scholars in my field using that platform. I would have never predicted that that would have ever happened. Yeah. One day we will wake up and it will be transformed and it will be one of the people like Nate who has presented an alternative path that got traction. I think it's going to be a fascinating next decade in scientific publication because I think there's enough resentment and anxiety about the current system that people are ready for a change. We've just got to find the right solution. Yeah, and I think an interesting discussion that we will likely have time and time again over the next few years as we follow these changes is it's it's what Nate mentioned, how whatever the changes are in the publishing structure, how those interface and change the incentive structures that Nate mentioned in our science, academic science training path. I mean, it's so linked to being independent, having these first author publications of the publications you have being judged by some committee and them needing to be good enough Uh, to move on to your next step. I mean, the direction that Nate is envisioning could really turn even our whole academic incentive model on its head for um, academic trainees and even faculty. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and make my rare prediction because I don't like to predict things. Let's do it. But I think think the change is going to happen with the Nates of the world. It's the people listening right now. It's the the grad students, the postdocs, the early faculty members who came up in their training in a world where publishing could be easy and fast. And so they're not so entrenched in the in the old way. And I think what we're seeing is their frustration. Nate described his frustration with the way things are. And because he's not 40 years into his career, he doesn't have to say, well, I can't change it. I may as well play along. He's, he's at the stage where he can say, I'm going to do something different than this, something that makes more sense for the technology we have now. And I think that's where it's going to come from. That may take people retiring, so it may be a slow process in science, but I think it's going to come from from these early career people who grew up with Twitter. Yeah, and you know, Dan, I think we're starting to see it in some ways with faculty now. Uh, some who are newer, younger faculty, but some who aren't, who are doing things like they're always publishing their findings in preprints, and they're doing things like making the decision that for my research group and for my publications we're only going journals that are open source. You know, these are decisions that I think some faculty are making now. So um, I can see once... I can, maybe, maybe on the other side yeah. where they are so established, they're not so worried about the impact factor. I think that's possible. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Well, we've had a lot to think about. Um, we'll see how this turns out. But if you have an experience with micro publishing, please write to us, podcast at com. We would love to hear about how that worked for you, whether it was 
good or bad and, and what platform you use. That would be helpful for us to understand how this trend is progressing. And certainly if you're interested in being involved, get in touch with Nate on the work he's doing with FlashPub or check out micropublication.org. They've got some publications there for you to look at if you want to see what that's all about and it might be right for your research. Awesome. Well, if you have any other questions or topic ideas, we would love to hear them. You can email us podcast at hellophd.com. Send us a tweet at hellophd. Uh, if you like the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We do love the feedback, and oftentimes we will share those on the show. So it'd be a great way for uh, you to hear your voice on the air. If you'd like to become a, a supporter, you can go to patreon.com or visit our website and click the Become a Patron button. What else, Josh? What did I miss? I was reading quickly. Thanks to the ongoing support of all of our patrons. Absolutely. And to Grace, thank you for becoming a patron. And Josh, we will see you, I think, in a couple of weeks. We've got an episode coming up about doing research and training at an institution as opposed to at a traditional university setting. We sure will. Oh, and Dan, I wanted to mention, I don't know if we'll have another episode before then, but I will be in Anaheim, California at the Abercams Conference, ABRCMS. And I know I saw some of our listeners last year at Abercams. So if anyone listening to the show is going to be at that conference, come find me. Can I go too? Yeah, sure. Great. Go to Disneyland. Are you going to Disneyland? I am going to Disneyland, yeah. You should have led with that. You buried the lead. I know. I'm going to Disneyland. All right, Joshua. We will see you in a couple of weeks. See you then.